Hello, everyone. I'm Roman Polnar, and on behalf of Hebrew Free Loans Business Circle, I am delighted to welcome you to Food for Thought, which is a series of conversations with business leaders, entrepreneurs, professionals, passion-driven philanthropists, and thought leaders in our community who offer to share their insights. And today, I am especially excited to have a conversation with a special individual and our Business Circle member, Eric Benamou. Now, it's hard for me to really wrap my mind and my arms around the best way to introduce Eric because of the many dimensions that make him and his life's work so unique, but I will do my best. Because on the highest level, I'd say that Eric is deeply committed to building a better world. And he pursues this commitment through his work at Benamou Global Ventures, a global venture capital firm supporting the most promising entrepreneurs around the world, as well as through his many passions, among them entrepreneurship, technology, innovation, Israel, and giving back. And prior to founding Benamou Global Ventures and the Israeli Venture Network, Eric's professional career in the IT industry spanned 40 years and included serving as CEO of 3Com, CEO of Palm Computing, makers of the Palm Pilot, for those of you that remember, as well as many other top leadership roles through which he participated in seven IPOs and 36 mergers and acquisitions. So I will certainly be asking Eric to share some of his professional insights as CEO of these large enterprises, as well as his venture capitalist views on supporting rising entrepreneurs and his personal journey that I think you will find both interesting as well as motivational. And just before welcoming Eric, I'd like to thank our sponsor, the Hebrew Free Loan of San Francisco, for supporting our Northern California Jewish community for over 124 years. And this series of conversations is another way to offer resources and support, because each person that we're speaking with is a business leader with real-world experience who have volunteered to share their insights that may help you navigate whatever challenges or opportunities you may be facing in your own life or in business. And so without further ado, Eric, welcome to Food for Thought. Thank you so very much for being here. Thanks, Roman. It's great to be here. So Eric, uh, there's so many places that we could start, and I have a lot of questions that I know our listeners would love to have you talk about, but you asked me to mention three specific words in your introduction, and so I think we should start there. So tell me, why did you choose technology, entrepreneur, and immigrant as those three important words? Indeed, it's a great place to start. Uh, it's, uh, th these, these three words um, really defined a lot of uh, uh, my trajectory as uh, not only a professional, but also as a human being. So I, I, I deeply believe that uh, Immigrants have something a bit special in their experience that influences how they behave, how they think, uh, how they approach the world. Um, and they basically try harder. They, they go through the, the ordeal of leaving a lot of uh, uh, where they were born behind and their environment, their ecosystem, their relationships, and they have to restart somewhere else. And making this mental shift prepares you better for the challenges ahead that inevitably come your way if you want to build something. So I have a bias towards uh, immigrant entrepreneurs. I think they will try harder. They have a chip on their shoulder. 
And in fact, uh, the numbers are there to prove this. Uh, immigrant entrepreneurs have been immensely successful, disproportionate to the numbers. And you find them not just at the head of startups, but at the head of the, the most prominent technology companies in the world. So that, that's why uh, I have this bias as an individual, but also my entire firm uh, wants to invest in cross-border companies basically companies born thousands of miles away from here in Silicon Valley, uh, led by entrepreneurs who decided that uh, transplanting themselves and the family was worth the sacrifice in order to build a, a more ambitious uh, business. Well, I'm curious how much of your kind of worldview and these um, uh, discoveries that you'd made along the way were shaped by your own personal experience. It certainly was. It's, uh, this was not by choice. Uh, I, I was born in a small village in uh, North Africa, in Algeria, to be precise. And this was purely circumstances. Uh, it's, uh, I could have been born just 20 miles west and I've been born on the Moroccan side, which would have influenced uh, my, my destiny. The Sephardic Jews who were born in Algeria were given French citizenship which was a great advantage during the independence war because at least we had one place we could go uh, since we were all practically expelled from uh, from this place where we had probably lived for hundreds if not thousands of years uh, moroccan jews were not as fortunate because uh, they were not french citizens so they had to either go to israel go to canada if you if you made it to the us but but for me it's uh, it, uh, my, my passage to the U.S. Uh, had a stopover about 15 years in France, from the age of five to the age of 20. And, uh, and after that, uh, I came to the U.S. Uh, uh, to stay to this day. Uh, went to Stanford. And uh, I didn't realize it at the time, but uh, I've not lived uh, further away than just five miles from Stanford hmm. ever since, since uh, 1976. So that, that, that was my, my trajectory. And so uh, I qualified as an immigrant. Mm. Uh, I had to transplant myself at the age of five and then again at the age of 20. So it's kind of a, a double experience. And this uh, prepared me well for being an entrepreneur. So maybe you can take us through that journey a little bit because I know that you reached the peak of your professional accomplishments and career as a leader of global enterprises and you now support entrepreneurs around the world but i'm sure it wasn't always like that so what would you share with us as kind of the most important mile markers in your life that got you from let's say stanford or if you wanted to start even sooner whatever you think would help you know our listeners get a better sense and better value out of you know the, the worldview that you've um you shape for yourself and what you're looking to accomplish. So what was your journey like? Well, um, I was born in 1955, which makes me almost 67 today. And the reason I start there is because people who were born in that year uh, have a special privilege. They were born in the year that graduated uh, 18 to 20 years later, which was the very, very beginning of when computer science and networking was taught uh, in engineering schools. And this is the same luck that uh, people like uh, 
Bill Gates, Eric Schmidt, uh, uh, and many others, uh, Steve Jobs, of course, uh, share. Uh, we were the first cohort of people who were exposed to advanced computer technology. Had we been born just uh, four or five years earlier, we would have missed all this. And I'm sure we would have had a very different career. So, so this uh, set me up in, in the right way. Uh, and I'm not the, the one that discovered this uh, factoid. Malcolm Gladwell wrote an entire book about this. And, uh, and he, he made that, that point. And I think it has borne out based on the, my experience. So uh, I was the first. Uh, uh, in my generation to be able to get into uh, computers uh, in grad school, even before grad school. And uh, this gave me a taste for what's uh, for the potential of information technology. Also coming to Stanford in 1975, 76 was an immense privilege because this was the very, very beginning of the ARPANET, which eventually became the internet. And it was just uh, two miles north of uh, Xerox Park. Uh, Palo Alto Research Center, which pioneered a lot of the technologies that we take for granted uh, in our office today, like, uh, like the Ethernet network, and, uh, laser printers, uh, bitmap displays, the mouse, all of these things. Uh, it was already right there in prototype form at Xerox Park. So you had basically a glimpse of the future by being so close to it, and I had a chance to visit it uh, when I was about uh, 2021. And this uh, set my career down, down this path. And this is why uh, I didn't even finish my PhD at Stanford. Uh, I just I joined uh, what was then a startup for a company called Zilog, one of the very first microprocessor-based companies that uh, kind of came out of Intel. And I worked for um, the inventor of the microprocessor, a man named Federico Fujin, uh, who has patents on the, these seminal uh, inventions. And there, uh, I ended up working on uh, putting these microprocessors to work in a networking environment. And this is, uh, this is what I started to do as a young engineer. Eventually, uh, I was part of the founding team of uh, one of the very first networking companies called Bridge, which ended up merging with 3Com uh, in 1987. And, uh, this, and the board put me at the helm of 3Com, and uh, this set my, uh, the trajectory of uh, the segment of my career as a, as a CEO, which is a very different experience than as an engineer. So I, I learned the, the lessons of leadership uh, in that role. I was quite young at, at the time. So um, I'm sure that uh, I made a lot of naive mistakes, but uh, by and large, it was a very successful and rewarding journey, not, not just for me, but for our investors and uh, the tens of thousands of employees who worked for the company. Uh, Palm was a very interesting excursion on the side because we were convinced that uh, information was going to reach the palm of our hands. And uh, when we came across this uh, this budding little startup, we felt it, it, it was going to go places. And I figured out things that Apple had completely missed with uh, the Newton. It has, uh, it, it, they developed a device which has the which had the right user interface, user experience, size, uh, battery consumption, uh, graffiti. It had a whole bunch of things which uh, made it stick. And this was the first truly successful organizer on, on, on a broad scale. And just a few years later, 
we added telephony to this and, and built the first smartphone. And, and this, uh, this was a unique experience that took me into a different part of the industry, but uh, I'm just so happy that I had a chance to, to enjoy that. And I worked with uh, those brilliant people there, including the, the founders of, of Palm and, uh, and many other people who helped uh, build the business. So um, this was my professional trajectory. And uh, at some point, I, I reached a stage where uh, after 15 years, extremely intense uh, work as CEO, where I was living and, and dreaming uh, my company, my investors, my products, uh, I decided that uh, I should move to a different phase. And uh, my family encouraged me to do that. Um, and in 2004, uh, I basically became chairman of these two companies, uh, 3Com and Palm, um, and uh, turned the reign over to a CEO. Uh, and it was his turn <laughs> to live and dream the company. And, and me, I could, I could take a, a seat back and, uh, and provide coaching and, and oversight and help, help um, uh, make the board uh, an asset. Uh, and this was a completely different experience. But it left me free to uh, to do something more with my time. So I started to invest as an angel investor. And that's what I did for several years. And it was kind of a lonely job after having run a, a multi-billion dollar business with 10,000 people. Uh, I was just by myself as my assistant. Uh, and completely different experience, but it gave me a chance to uh, reconnect with uh, the young entrepreneurs who are of the next generation we're building the next uh, the next companies and uh, riding the next technological ways uh, and uh, I, I took uh, a liking to this uh, and i felt that uh, i could be reasonably good at this and i decided to a few years later professionalize this activity and turn this into classical venture firm we're still calling it Benham Global Ventures, although now we're shortening this to BGV because it mm -hmm. kind of rolls off your tongue more easily. But we now have a full team of investors who work with me and uh, build a portfolio of, uh, of startup investments. And, uh, and we invest in these companies quite early. Sometimes we help to incubate them, but then we stay with them all the way to, to an exit. Sometimes it's an IPO, sometimes it's a, it's a trade sale. But uh, we try to contribute all the things that we learned about building businesses and all the mistakes that we made, we wanna make sure that these entrepreneurs don't make the same. They'll make others, but uh, at least they won't make the same as uh, what we did. Uh, and that's extremely satisfying just to see how these young entrepreneurs are, are just soaking knowledge and uh, building a business with complete passion. And uh, that keeps my, my, my work extremely interesting and I, I love it. Along the way, it also created a bit of space and time on my schedule to engage more, more readily in, in philanthropic activities. So uh, uh, all the capital that, uh, that uh, I had built as a, as a CEO, I tried to put to work in philanthropic activities. This is what uh, gave rise to IVN, the Israel Venture Network that I started uh, uh, with uh, many of the people I had done business with in the past in Israel. Uh, uh, many of these people had the same background as me from a technological standpoint. They lived in a different place, but frankly, we spoke the same language. And we felt it was 
incumbent upon us since we had we had been so lucky uh, to be part of this generation uh, to do something to uh, improve society. And uh, NIVN was born as a result of, of this thinking and continues to live today. So the, the, the Israel National Network is focused on, on, on basically social investments, impact investments. We made these investments initially on a one-off basis, uh, one project after the other. And after that, since we understood how to run funds, we actually pulled this together into impact investment funds, which is uh, what we've been doing for the last uh, 10 years. Some of these funds we did completely on our own, uh, and others we did in partnership with uh, the government, uh, the government of Israel, that is. And uh, it's been immensely rewarding because uh, these, these impact funds uh, have truly had, had an impact. They've changed the lives of uh, tens of thousands of people in, in Israel. Would have otherwise been completely disenfranchised on, on the fringe of, of society, whether they are um, mentally handicapped people, physically handicapped people, uh, uh, Bedouins, uh, Arab women, uh, ultra-Orthodox increasingly. Uh, this is one of the biggest social problems in the Israeli societal structure. So all of these, these, uh, these investments, I think, have made a difference and have taken advantage of what we learned as, uh, as business entrepreneurs. Um, Eric, thank you for giving us that walkthrough. And, you know, just listening to you, it's such a humbling or a very humble way in which you kind of go about going over your life and attributing some of the fortunes to luck or just, you know, being born in a certain place, being born at a certain time and having been given these opportunities. But I'm sure it wasn't just luck. I'm sure it was a lot of hard work and some of the mistakes that you had mentioned that you might have made personally that you wish rising entrepreneurs would avoid. And, um, you know, my mind, I almost see you know, three big parts of your life that you just went over. And I would love to ask you to share with us some of the ways that you overcame and the biggest challenges that you faced perhaps as a leader of a multi-billion global, global enterprise. And then also as you transition to your venture work, you know, what are some of the success markers that you look for in the entrepreneurs that you're now supporting? And then if we look at your philanthropic work, you know, how do you decide which organizations to support or which efforts to pursue? So I know this is a lot and we don't have a great deal of time together, uh, but I do really appreciate the time that you are giving us. So take your pick, all three, one of the three, whichever you prefer. Well, it's, uh, you're right to segment this trajectory into these uh, these buckets because uh, they, they were distinct in terms of uh, certainly how I lived through them. And I do think that the challenges that you face as a CEO are, are quite unique because uh, there's no way to succeed unless, uh, unless you're totally dedicated to the task. This is not one of these jobs that you can do uh, part-time. Uh, I'm mystified by the fact that a few CEOs, prominent ones, have tried to be CEOs in multiple companies that maybe they can do it. I, I certainly couldn't do it. Most people cannot do it. You have to live and breathe what you do. and. Uh, and, and what I found most difficult is that you have to be passionate and dispassionate at the same time. So you have to be able to keep these two 
mental states in, uh, together and know how to turn on one aspect or the other, depending on the circumstances. You have to be passionate to justify the, the toil, the long hours and so on. And, and you have to also be dispassionate in terms of uh, understanding you fiduciary responsibilities as a CEO. You have to do right by your shareholders. And sometimes you have to meet, to make very tough decisions. Uh, the, the ones which come to mind are uh, shutting out a division or laying off people um, and, and sometimes shattering their dreams. And you have to do this in the name of the, the greater good of, uh, of the corporation and all of its constituents. So learning how to turn, uh, turn these, these mental switches on and off is, is challenging. And it took me a long time to uh, to master this. I don't think I, I never quite got there, but I was getting better at this. Uh, um, the, uh, and in fact, today, as, as, uh, as I'm sure that uh, your listeners and yourself have seen, we're rethinking the definition of a corporation. It's not just there to serve uh, shareholders. We realize that uh, there are other stakeholders that have to be given full, full attention. Uh, so, so there is. This was to me the, the biggest challenge. There is a, a different kind of kind of challenges uh, as an investor that you face, uh, which has to do with um, a broader version of the first one, which is decision hygiene. You have to be able to make really good decisions, uh, and be f as much as possible for free free from bias. Uh, free from the uh, availability uh, bias, for example. Just because you meet five companies in this space does not mean that this is the best space available. Um, you have to be able to uh, count on your partners to keep you honest. If you're part of the venture firm and you're passionate about uh, funding this entrepreneur, somebody in your firm has to say, this is all the thing can go wrong if you do this. This is why this business will fail. And uh, you better have good answers uh, to overcome these objections. So being able to have these, uh, these uh, I guess, decision hygiene devices to, to help improve the quality of your investments is, is challenging because we're all human beings. And uh, even if we theoretically understand how our mind can go wrong, uh, it doesn't mean that we have the answers and can control it. So, so this is uh, this is what uh, we work hard to uh, to improve on uh, as a firm. Uh, sometimes uh, we put good money after bad uh, when it's pretty clear that uh, uh, the company is going to have a rough uh, rough go in the next uh, next several years. It's not clear that you should put uh, more money behind it, particularly when you have other companies who are doing extremely well and who could do even better if they had more of your capital. So, so these sort of things are, are, take a long time to master. Uh, and uh, as a philanthropist, um, you have yet a, a, another set of challenges because uh, you're trying to figure out where you can have the greatest impact. Uh, and, uh, and it's not necessarily the, in the places that move your heart the most. Uh, so once again, it's uh, the same general theme that you, you have to master part of your brain and your passions, your emotions, so on, in order to be able to, to do the best possible things with your time, your capital, 
the capital of your donors or your investors. So these are the, the challenges that I found uh, the hardest to overcome uh, throughout my career across these three phases. Well, that's a, a great way of capturing all of the questions that I had. And I, uh, you know, I think a lot of people who are listening or will be listening or watching this um, are business owners that may be struggling with some of the same obstacles that you just described in their own ventures, no matter how big or small, um, as well as just individuals who are not necessarily business owners that you know, are trying to make good decisions. And when bias comes into play or passion and dispassion, I love how you put that in a dichotomy in place and finding a good balance, um, as well as individuals that support um, worthwhile causes and organizations. And uh, it, you're right in that it's really hard to make the decision to support the right ones, whether it's for business, investment, or philanthropically. Um, and given that we are or were brought together and we're here because Hebrew Free Loan brought us together, um, it, it, was there a story that made you decide that you wanted to support the agency and the work that it does and sort of what motivated you to be involved given all of the other options that you might have in front of you? Well, uh I like the fact that Hebrew Freedom has really helped um, young students, particularly immigrants, mm. um, to somehow uh, make a go of uh, their lots in, in the U.S. We've worked closely with uh, in Israel with a sister organization of Hebrew Freedom there, and they've been extremely helpful to us. But, but I've, I've seen how I personally, even though I, I never benefited personally from a Hebrew Freedom loan, I have many people close to me who did, and I see how I uh, saw how it made a difference in their trajectory at the, at the crucial moments uh, in their lives. So, uh, so it seems to me that uh, what uh, Hebrew Freedom stands for is totally aligned with uh, what I deeply deeply believe in. Uh, that's why I support it uh, wholeheartedly. As you can tell from uh, the, the way I speak about this, it's. Uh, I have a deep conviction that uh, the world goes around because there are entrepreneurs who create things mm. and they create value. And uh, it's a very, very tiny percentage of the population we have what it takes to do that and to do this at scale. And, and uh, the, rest of, the rest of us, 90 plus percent, are there to just share the spoil and uh, ride on their coattails. So, so I, I think we have to do anything we can to make sure that these these people who have what it take, what it takes, are given the resources, the support, so financial and human and, and the rest, uh, to fulfill their potential. Yeah, and I think that's a, a very very important point. And I know you mentioned it before when we spoke earlier that um, it's not just about a handout or it's not just about helping someone at a particular time, but it's staying with them to ensure that they continue moving forward. Same as I imagine you do in your venture work, where it's not just the money that helps these individuals and companies grow, but it's really the, the, sh the guidance and this ongoing uh, support that you can provide. And so with just a minute or so left, um, are there any takeaways that you would wanna leave our listeners with in any of these sort of profiles as someone who is perhaps a leader in a business and maybe there's something that you can leave as a gem for them to think about 
perhaps there's a rising entrepreneur that is either thinking of launching their next venture or is getting ready to, or perhaps they're already off the ground. Anything for them. And lastly, anything for those individuals that are looking for ways to support worthwhile causes and what they should be thinking about. Well, um, you thought I was a bit humble when I described my, my, my trajectory, but I, I really don't think I was. It's, uh, we, we have this bias, that talk, I spoke a lot about biases. We have this bias to attribute anything good that, uh, that we did, or anything any success to our skills or, or our talents. And if you only took a little bit of time and look at yourself from a, from a distance, you'd realize that uh, so much of it uh, you owe to uh, uh, you, you owe to luck. I mean, you, you, you didn't choose your parents. You didn't choose the place and time of, of your birth. This is sheer luck. And so much of it puts you on, on a more favorable track. Clearly, you work super hard. That's, uh, that's more under your control. And even then, you could, uh, you could, dis you could argue that uh, the genes that make you, made you a hard worker, you didn't choose. <laughs> but, uh, but, but for the most part, we're all guilty of attributing to talent what, what really is more uh, the result of luck, happenstance. Um, and, and I think it's a, as much as entrepreneurs need to be completely driven, they have to keep this in their mind so that when they achieve a great deal, when they're in a position of leadership, they have to keep this, this humility that causes them to, uh, uh, to be better mentors when it when the, the turn comes and be better philanthropists if they so choose to invest some of the capital uh, into these these sort of causes so 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 to me this this self-honesty it's, it's part of knowing knowing yourself basically it is essential to uh, to a, a full life I mean you, you have to be able to maintain that throughout and never have this uh, get to your head that's a wonderful way to close a great conversation Eric on behalf of everyone at Hebrew Free Loan and our entire community, thank you for taking the time. Thank you for being and here and sharing uh, these insights with us. Um, it was a real pleasure. Thanks, Robin. Pleasure was mine. Thank you. Thanks, Eric. Take care.